0: Thank you, Mike. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the uh, serves, one of the pastors here at the Parkway Church. Glad that you are with us. As uh, we just read, we will be in First John chapter three. Finally made it out of chapter two starting in verse 1. At this rate, we will be in 1 John for the next three decades. So uh, we are going to be in 1 John three one. As you turn there uh, to a passage about the fatherhood of God, I want to tell you a little bit about my children. And so I have two kids. Uh, My daughter's name is Larkin, and she is three and a half. And then My son is canon, not like the uh, gun on the Come and Take It t shirts, but as in the canon of Scripture. And uh, he is four months old, so I have a little girl and a little boy. My daughter, we are teaching how to pray. And, uh, and so that's been a really fun experience if anyone's ever taught a kid how to pray uh, because her prayers, no matter what, eventually devolve into her just listing things. God, I thank you for light bulbs. God, I thank you for chairs. God, I thank you for tables. God, I thank you for Bacon. That's when I say amen. Not because she needs to wrap it up, but because she just said bacon. And I think we should praise the Lord for bacon. But what's really interesting is that every single prayer, every single prayer, literally, and I'm using literally in the literal sense that I mean literally, every single prayer, she begins like this, God, thank you for spiders now, here's what's interesting. My daughter doesn't actually like spiders. I try to show her a spider outside, and she will scream and run away and want me to hold her. But for whatever reason, she has this overwhelming appreciation of arachnids, the fact that God created them. I've never started a prayer that way. Of all the things I've ever thanked God for, I've never just started a prayer, God, you know what? I'm just really thankful for spiders right now. But for whatever reason. That is, uh, is my daughter. My son, on the other hand, given that he's only four months old, we're not yet teaching him how to, uh, to pray, basically his tricks right now are that he can roll over and he can smile. So most of my interactions with him are just making funny faces and funny sounds and smiling at him. And so I'm enjoying that while I can because I assume that there's going to be a day at which he will think it's weird that I'm just smiling at him and making funny faces. For instance, my father-in-law is in this room today, and if he just smiled at me and made funny faces, I would think that's really, really strange. That's kind of creepy. And so we're enjoying this time uh, with, uh, with both of our kids. The reason I mention this is because I adore my kids, as I'm sure that you adore your kids as well. And I've adored my kids. I've loved my kids ever since I heard that we were pregnant. There's a sense in which the moment that uh, we saw the pregnancy test, uh, there was this, uh, this sense of, uh, of joy, this sense of love, this sense of compassion. And then it only grew as we went and got a sonogram. And so we got to hear the heartbeat and we got to see the, the form. But at the same time, I also recognized that my love wasn't fully complete at that point. Because to be honest with you, that could have been just a recorded sound of anyone's heartbeat. And that could have been a sonogram of anyone's womb. It's not like I went and said, I think I ought to know Casey's womb. You know, there's no way I actually know. And so it really, although there was a sense in which I loved my kids from even before I saw them, there was a sense in which there was something distinct and unique whenever the doctor actually handed me my children and I saw them for the very first time something erupted in my heart and it has forever changed the trajectory of my life and it's changed everything about my life those of you uh, those of us with uh, young kids can probably say amen to that it's changed the way that I sleep, as if I do sleep now. It's changed the way that I, uh, that I work, that I play, that I think about leisure time, that I think about hobbies, all of these sorts of things. Having these kids, loving these kids, seeing these kids for the first time has forever changed the entire trajectory of my life. And that is my hope for this passage this morning. That's kind of a grand goal, but there is something that we are to see here. In fact, that's how the passage is going to begin. He's going to command us to see, to behold, to look. There's something that if only we could actually grasp this, then it would forever change the trajectory of our lives, forever change the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we relate to lust and pride and anxiety, the way that we relate to uh, suffering, the way that we think about sanctification and on and on we could go. So that's my hope for us this morning, that we would collectively see something together. And we can only do that if God would give us eyes to see. And so I wanna begin by asking us to pray together as I, uh, as I often do, I will just ask you to pray for yourself first, that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear, and then would you pray that for those around you as well, that we would collectively behold the glory of this word, and that our lives would be forever changed and marked by it. And then lastly, would you pray for me, for boldness and faithfulness? Father, I pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might behold the beauty of this message, the reality of your fatherhood and our sonship for those who love and trust Jesus and that it would change our hearts and our lives and that as a result of this we might be sanctified, that we might be able to withstand suffering, that it might speak to fears and anxieties and on and on we could go, Lord. And so would you help us this morning? We ask because you're a good father who gives good gifts and so we ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, let's look at 1 John 3.1. And we're going to just look at that first section there. The verse says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And we'll look first at the, the first phrase, see what kind of love the Father has Given to us. And I want to begin by just kind of considering the context of 1 John. And so we'll look uh, first at the overall context and then the immediate context. The overall context, the larger context of the entire book, the Epistle of 1 John, is that John is writing this letter for both pastoral and also polemical reasons. There were certain false teachers who had gone out from the church. So John writes this to confront these false teachers, whom he calls Antichrists. That's the polemical nature. It's an argument against them, combating these false teachers. But not only does he write for polemical reasons to combat these, first, uh, these false teachers, but he also writes for pastoral reasons, to comfort the true believers, to comfort the flock. And so that's the larger context. And then last week we looked at the end of chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. Carl did a great job preaching through that, and it says, "'And now, little children, abide in me so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him.'" Now, two of the main points that we'll see from this 1 John 2, 28 through 29 passage, two of the main points that we saw in last week's text are going to be further developed in chapter 3. Next week, we're going to see a bit more clearly what it is that John means by Christ's coming or his appearing. So you see that language in 1 John 2. We're going to see more of that in uh, next week's passage. But this week, we're going to flesh out the meaning of what does it mean at the end of this passage in 1 John 2 where it says that we are born of Him. And that relates to our text this morning and the reminder that we are children of God. We are born of God. So you'll see here these two ideas from last week's text that are going to be further developed, one this week and one next week. But before well, we really begin to develop this idea that we are born of God, that we are children of God. I want to look at this first word. It's a command. What command is that? What word is that? It's see, behold, look. That's the command that uh, he has given here. Raise your hand if you know what the term rickrolled is. Have you ever been Rickrolled? Rickrolled, if you don't know what it is, it's an internet phenomenon that was about 2008 to 2010, back in the glory days of the internet. And uh, what it was, was someone would send you a text or someone would send you an email or something like that and they would say, hey, you gotta read this article or you gotta watch this video, it's the greatest thing ever. And you click on it and instead of being the greatest thing ever, it's instead a clip of the 80s classic one-hit wonder, Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. And so you just are all of a sudden watching this music video and it would happen all the time. The reason I tell you that is because I wanna let you know right now, I'm not gonna rickroll you, right? I'm telling you this passage could change your life if you understand it and I'm not playing an elaborate prank on you or something like that. There is beauty, there is truth, there is glory, there is grace, there is goodness, there is love to behold in this passage If you will only do what John says by the grace of God, by the work of the Spirit, through the Scripture, if you will behold what He tells you to see this morning, you will be changed. And if you aren't all that impressed by this glory, it isn't because this isn't actually glorious or this isn't actually impressive. Instead, it's because you're spiritually blind. And you need eyes to see more clearly because this is objectively good and glorious and beautiful. So what does he tell us to behold? He says, see, behold, look. See what? See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That's it. That's the command. Behold the love that's manifest in our sonship. Love is a huge, huge concept in Johannine literature in general and in uh, 1 John in particular. By the way, Johannine is just a word that refers to all of the writings of John. And so love is this huge concept in all of John's writings, whether it's the gospel or the epistles or whatever it might be, but in particular in the book of 1 John, the word love occurs 46 times in the book. What's really interesting though is we don't actually see it until chapter 2. And then once we see it in chapter two, it begins to get louder and louder and louder until it crescendos in chapter four when it's used 27 times. In one chapter, it's used 27 times. It's kind of like if you've ever driven to the mountains and you see them off in the distance. And then as you get closer to the mountains, they appear bigger and bigger and bigger and more vast and more marvelous and more beautiful. That's kind of like the concept of love in the book of 1 John. It starts off really, really slowly, and then it begins to build and build, and you see it more and more and more and more. And so in this passage, we're kind of only in the foothills, and yet even in the foothills, there's this glory. It's marvelous. It's beautiful to consider the love of God. So John says, see what kind of love. What does that mean? Does that mean maybe you've heard before a preacher talk about the three different Greek words for love? You have agape, and you have phileo, and you have eros. Or maybe you've heard a pastor talk about the three different Hebrew words for love, raya, and ahava, and dode. Now, by the way, most of those nuances that you might hear someone talk about are rather inconsequential. Oftentimes, when a, uh, an author of Scripture uses the word agape versus phileo, there's no distinction whatsoever. But regardless, that is not his point at all. Whenever he says, see what kind of love, he's not talking about the semantic differences between individual Greek or Hebrew words. That's not what he means at all. This, uh, this Greek uh, uh, word, actually, that's translated as the phrase in English, what kind, we see a number of times in, scriptures, uh, in Scripture. It's used in the New Testament when, uh, when, the, 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 uh, uh, when Jesus calms the storm in the Gospels. And the response of the disciples to seeing this miraculous act of Jesus to calm the storm is they say, what kind of man is this? It's also used later on in the Gospels where the disciples are walking around Jerusalem and they see the temple there and they see these, uh, these massive stones there in the temple and, and their response is, look at what kind of stones these are. Now, that doesn't mean that these are like amateur geologists and they're talking about, are those sedimentary? or igneous, or metamorphic, or something like that. That's not the point at all. The point is when they say, see what kind of stones they're seeing, see how massive, how marvelous, how awesome, how large, how great, how vast are these stones. So when John writes, see what kind of love, he means how great is the love, how massive is the love, how incredible, how awesome, how vast beyond all measure is the love of God. And this makes sense if you understand what he's talking about here in the context. If you understand what it is that this love accomplishes, you will understand just how big and vast and majestic and marvelous it actually is. Because it takes vile, dirty, guilty, depraved, wicked, evil sinners and makes them sons and daughters. That's love. That's massive love marvelous love. That's what kind of love the Father has given to us, that He's bestowed on us, that He's lavished on us, a love that makes us, even though we're wicked and evil and unrighteous by our very nature, would make us sons and daughters, beloved sons and daughters. That's what kind of love that He has bestowed on us. Let's keep going in the passage. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Now, in the New Testament, there are at least two different but complementary ways that believers are said to become children of God. It isn't one or the other, it's both and. If you are a child of God, then two truths are simultaneously true of you. Number one, this is the first way that you become a child of God. Again, both of these are true. It's not one or the other. The first way is that you are adopted into God's family. If you're a child of God, you have been adopted into God's family. Look at Romans eight twelve through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I look at Galatians 4, 4-7, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has spent, uh, sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So this is the first way that you become a child of God, that you are spiritually or theologically adopted. But the second way that you become a child of God is that you are regenerated or born again. That's what we see throughout the Gospel of John and then also the letters of God, uh, John. Again, Johannine literature. John 1, 12 through 13, he writes, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Or John 3, 3, the entire passage is about regeneration, being born again. And Jesus answered, this is Nicodemus that he's talking to, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or in 1 John, the book that we're studying together, 1 John 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We looked at that last week. 1 John 4.7, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 5.1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So you have adoption And then you also have regeneration. Both of those are asking this question, how is it that we go from being sinners and slaves to self and to Satan to becoming sons and daughters of God? And the answers are adoption and regeneration. Both of these are true. Interestingly enough, Paul tends to emphasize adoption while John tends to emphasize regeneration. But like we said, you aren't adopted unless you're regenerated, and you're not regenerated unless you are adopted. Again, it isn't either or, it's a both and. We just happen to see one a bit more in the theology of Paul and another uh, a bit more in the theology of John. So what's the big deal with being a child of God? What does this even matter? Aren't we all God's children? After all, in, uh, you know, in, in a month or so, we'll start singing Santa Claus knows we're all God's children. That makes everything right, right? Doesn't the Bible just simply say we're all God's children? So what does it matter? How does this prove that God loves us, that we're called children of God, if everyone is a child of God? Aren't we all God's children? Well, yes and no. Depends on what you mean by that. All humans are God's children. In a sense, in the sense that they bear the amago Dei, that's the image of God, in the sense that God is the creator of all things, but that isn't the way at all, that isn't at all the way that the New Testament uses the idea of being a child of God. Rather, this is a special privilege for the elect, This is a special privilege who have been regenerated, who have been adopted, who have been justified and so forth. If you've not been born of God, then you have not been adopted, you've not been united to Christ. If you do not love and trust Jesus, then you are not a son or daughter of God. You are not a child of God in the way that John is talking about, or Paul is talking about, or Jesus is talking about, uh, or indeed as the entire New Testament is talking about. Now, you might think that's great and all, but what do I care? Why do I actually need a spiritual father? I'm entirely content being this spiritual sort of orphan. But unfortunately, that's not the way that it works. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is having a conversation, uh, a lively discussion on this very topic. And he basically says, You have two options, two and only two options. You're either a son of God or a son of Satan. Look at John eight forty four. 44. This is Jesus speaking here. He says, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. And in the context there, it talks about how he is the uh, a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And lest you think that that's an appealing option to be a son of Satan... Paul expounds upon that a bit more in Ephesians chapter two where he says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's your son of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and then listen to this, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So what's the big deal with being a child of God? Well, there's two ways that you could answer that. There's two reasons that this is essential for you to grasp. There's two reasons that you should long to be a child of God. The first one is to consider what you avoid as a child of God, and the second way is to consider what you gain as a child of God. What do you avoid? Well, based on the passages we just looked at, it's very obvious what you avoid. It should be clear that what you avoid is condemnation, what you avoid is judgment, what you avoid is divine wrath. In short, you avoid, by being a child of God, you avoid the judgment of hell, of eternal suffering, of separation from God. That right there should be enough to compel us to desire, to want, to long to be a child of God, to worship the God of grace who has rescued us from our deserved faith, fate, but that's not all. Not only does being a child of God mean that you avoid something, but being a child of God means you also gain something. You get something as a result of that. Sonship isn't just about getting out of hell, escaping God's wrath. It's about getting God. As one of my favorite pastors, John Piper, has said, the greatest good of the gospel is that you get God. That's the good news of the gospel. God himself that's the reward. You get love, you get grace, you get mercy, you get compassion, you get kindness because all of those things are his essential attributes. You get all of these things from the sovereign creator of all things. And because we are sons, we are heirs. What do you gain as a child of God? You gain an inheritance. A few minutes ago, we read from Romans 8 where Paul writes, Romans eight sixteen through 17, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We saw the similar idea in Galatians 4. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And did we can list out uh, uh, dozens of other passages on this connection between sonship and inheritance. By the way, just digress for a second. Uh, I just want to mention, when I speak of our sonship, or indeed when Scripture speaks of our sonship, that we're sons of God, it's not a a reference to our gender. You could just as well throw in uh, sons and daughters, similar to the way that we just say mankind to refer to men and women. So this has nothing to do with gender whatsoever. So every time I say sonship, Don't think that uh, because you are a woman or something like that, that you're excluded from this. Sonship refers to your identity as a son or a uh, daughter. Digression over. So what do we inherit as a result of our sonship? What do we inherit as a result of being children of God? At least four things that we see throughout Scripture. Number one, you inherit eternal life. That's the first thing you inherit. The second thing is you inherit the new heavens and the new earth. The third thing that you inherit is resurrected bodies. And the fourth thing that you inherit is God himself. Different passages of Scripture might emphasize one or the other, but those are the four things that we see in Scripture. In eternal life and joy, um, uh, God himself, the new heavens and the new earth, and resurrected bodies. So mankind, biblically, is divided into these two categories. On one hand, you have sons of wrath. That is who we all are by nature. We're all born into rebellion against God. It takes a divine work of grace to move us out of this category and into the second category that is sons and daughters of God, heirs of life and grace and joy and glory. So John writes, see what kind, how marvelous, how massive, how great, how vast is the love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God let's keep going see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are raise your hand if you've ever been called something that just isn't true about you maybe you've been called a name only some of you some of you weren't bullied at all all right didn't have anybody that was mean to you all right maybe you're called lazy or maybe you're called fat or maybe you're called stupid or whatever it might be and you know that's not actually true I once uh I've told this story before but I once kicked a vending machine because it ate my quarter and the security guard uh, yelled at me and said hey bird brain all right I'm not a bird brain right I would go out on a limb like a bird and uh, and say I'm I'm more intelligent than any bird that's out there all right why do I tell you that because I'm wounded by that security guard no, why do, I, why do I tell you that? Because we've all had experiences, even if you didn't raise your hand, we've all had experiences where we've been called something that isn't true, right? The fact that someone calls you something doesn't mean that you're actually a th- that thing We learned that as kids, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones or I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you or whatever it might be. We learned this whenever we're kids. Just because someone calls you something doesn't mean that you actually are that thing. So you might be tempted to read the previous section where it says that we're called children of God through that same sort of lens, as if we're just called children of God. But we're not actually, in fact, children of God. But this little phrase that we see here, and so we are, guards against that misinterpretation. How so? Because we need to understand that God's call means everything. In fact, his calling throughout Scripture creates the very thing that he calls. In the beginning, there is darkness. And what does he say? Let there be light. And as a response, there is light. He calls light into existence where it did not previously exist. Or you see this in the ministry of Jesus. Lazarus lies dead in his tomb and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And his speaking those words, his calling it into existence actually creates the thing that he called into existence. So when the Scripture says that you're called the children of God, it doesn't just mean that this is something that someone might call you, it means this is actually true of you. This is actually your identity. God speaking this over you actually forms your reality and your identity. As a result, that means our feelings are not ultimately authoritative. Your feelings do not define your reality. Whether you feel like a child of God or not is ultimately irrelevant to the question of whether or not you actually are a child of God. There are often days that I wake up and I don't feel like God loves me. I feel like He's angry at me. Or maybe even worse, I feel like He's just apathetic towards me. I feel like he's bored or disappointed with me or whatever it might be. And yet on those days, I'm no less an actual son than when I wake up singing at the idea that God loves me. My feelings don't actually determine my existence and my reality and my identity as a child of God. His word defines those. The fact that he calls us children means that we actually are children, If you love and trust Jesus, if you've been born again, if you've been adopted, his word is determinative and he has declared that all who have been adopted and regenerated, all who love and trust Jesus are his children. I talk a lot. If you uh, have been a a member here or you've been attending for any period of time, you've probably heard me talking about the fatherhood of God. It's a huge subject. You might get tired of me saying it. Too bad, I'm gonna say it for the next 30 years or however long I have uh, to be able to speech, uh, speak. I've mentioned before, the reason that I talk about this is because of all of the things that I've learned about God in, uh, in, in my 20 years of, of being regenerate, there are two truths that have most impacted my life. One is recognizing just how utterly sovereign God is. That has absolutely changed my life. But the other one is recognizing the fatherhood of God, how much he loves his children. There are very few things, in fact, uh, besides sovereignty, there is nothing else that has uh, led me to experience such levels of sanctification and joy and peace and hope and comfort like recognizing that God is a good father who gives good gifts. And so I come back to this subject often, anytime the text allows me to do so. And I often read a favorite quote on the subject. And uh, so I want to do it uh, again this morning for our edification and encouragement. It's from uh, J.I. Packer's classic work, Knowing God. If you haven't read that book, I highly recommend that you do so. Again, J.I. Packer, and he writes this. You sum up the whole New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. In other words, in order to be a Christian, there are certain truths that you have to embrace about God. He's triune, He's sovereign, He's omnipotent, He's omniscient, He's omnipresent, But most of these truths can be uh, embraced or believed with some degree of emotional or spiritual or relational distance. Whereas when we speak of the fatherhood of God, this is inherently relational. It forces these truths to not only inform our minds, but also to transform our hearts. I would guess in a room this size, there are a number of you who who feel somewhat enslaved to some particular sin, whether it's lust or pride or anger or fear or anxiety or apathy or depression. There's certainly a number of you in this room who are experiencing deep and profound suffering. In fact, after service last week, we had a number of you stand up and we laid hands on you and we prayed for you for that very reason. And so I want to go back one more time to Romans 8, not only because it's my favorite chapter in the whole uh, Bible but also because in it we explicitly see how sonship, the doctrine of our sonship, the doctrine of the fatherhood of God, explicitly relates to suffering. It speaks to our suffering. And it explicitly relates to our sanctification. It speaks to our struggle with lingering residual sin. And so look back at Romans 8, 12 through 17. And notice both of those things here. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Notice he just went from putting to death the deeds of the body to our sonship. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. And notice where he goes next as he transitions to talk about suffering. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So again, notice this. Notice how sonship explicitly relates to both sanctification and Suffering. Put off the deeds of the body because you're sons. Suffer with Christ because you're sons. In other words, knowing and embracing the truth of our text this morning, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, will profoundly uh, ch- change our perspective on sanctification and suffering. This truth is profoundly practical for the way that we approach both of those subjects. Back to 1 John, God not only calls you his children, you are in fact his children. That's what he's saying here. And so we are. You're not merely called this, you actually are this. He's not only called your father, he is in fact your father. Now, not the distorted image of a a father you might get from culture or media or maybe even your own experience. Maybe you had uh, really bad experiences with an abusive father or an apathetic father or an absent father, whatever it might be. Not your own experiences or cultural pictures of fallen, distorted, imperfect fathers, but instead a perfect heavenly father, a good father who gives good gifts, who loves you who calls you his own, who makes you an heir of all good things. But you might ask the question, if God loves us, if this is really true, if he's promised us joy, if he's promised us hope, if he's made us his children, then why is there schism? Why is there division and so forth in the context of 1 John? That brings us to the next point. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, I love the ESV, that's the English Standard Version of the Bible, which is the translation that we use here at Parkway. I honestly think that it's the best translation available today, but occasionally, uh, in humility, I don't love the way that they translate a phrase. The translators are much more brilliant than I, but occasionally, I don't like the way that they do something. And that's the case with the beginning of this passage today. The way that this particular phrase reads, it seems like it's just a kind of a parenthetical comment that's just kind of floating about, disconnected from the context. He says, we should be called children of God, and so we are, parentheses, by the way, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him, close parentheses, verse two, beloved, we are God's children now. The reason I don't like the way that that reads is because of the opening couple of words which just say, the reason. What's interesting is this little Greek phrase here isn't really translated like that with just the phrase the reason throughout the rest of the New Testament. It's typically, whenever you encounter this Greek phrase, it's typically translated as therefore or for this reason or this is why or something like that. And I think if they would have just done that, what they do elsewhere in Scripture, if they have just done that, it would have been much more helpful to us. I think that actually works much better in the context. I think what John is saying is, for this reason, what reason? Is it looking forward? No, I think it's looking backward. I think he says, for this reason, what reason? Because we are children of God. That's the reason the world does not know us. And then he further explains that reason by reminding us, by the way, it didn't know him. That's what I think it's saying here. So it'll read something like this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. Therefore, in light of this truth, in light of the truth of our sonship, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The idea that the world did not know God or does not know God is a really big theme in uh, in John's writings. In the Gospel of John, John 1.10, we see this. He that's Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. Or John sixteen, three. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But even more than these passages and a handful of others, I think John first uh, John three is alluding to one particular chapter. I think he's alluding back to John 15, which is a chapter we've spent quite a bit of time exploring over the past couple of weeks, given the fact that John 15 talks about abiding in Christ, and 1 John chapter 2 talks about abiding in Christ. In fact, we talked about in in John 15, you'll see references to abiding in Christ, like the branches abide in the vine and so forth. You see that 11 times in that one chapter, What's interesting is immediately after talking about abiding, the branches abiding in the vine, you read this in John 15, verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So you see the same idea here. 1 John 2 talks about abiding and then immediately thereafter, it talks about the fact that the world does not know us. Likewise with John 15. Because the world does not recognize God or the Son of God, it will not recognize the children of God. In fact, it will hate us. Now there's a sense in which that hasn't seemed to be the case in America for much of our history, although it seems to be more obvious uh, today. But from a non-American perspective, this is a really obvious thing. Uh, We've talked about this a a couple of times, especially in theological quipping uh, over the past couple of weeks, but more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in every other century combined. Think about that. In one century, more Christians were martyred, that is, persecuted unto death for their faith, in that one century than all 1900 centuries combined. In fact, according to some statistics, twice as many were actually martyred in the 20th century. Some 34 million documented cases versus all other centuries combined, the documented cases are about 18 million or so. So don't be deceived The world hates you, it doesn't understand you, it doesn't recognize you, it doesn't appreciate you or our commitment to the authority of scripture. It doesn't appreciate or understand our commitment to absolute truth or a biblical ethic when it comes to things like sexuality and social justice and gender and so forth. The world doesn't understand, it doesn't love you, in fact, it hates you, which makes it all the more tragic when those who call themselves Christians are willing to compromise and capitulate to the world. Willing to compromise or capitulate on Christ's word as it relates to some sort of truth that they want to whitewash, that they want to hide, that they want to neglect. This passage is a reminder that the world will gladly receive your worship, but in the end, it will devour you. That's the goal of the world. It does not recognize you. It does not love you. Indeed, it hates you. Now, this can be a real Debbie Downer. No offense if your name is Debbie. The world hates you. A servant is not above its master. If the world hates Jesus, then it will hate you. But there is also this huge silver lining that I hope that you see, and that is that the world hating you is just further evidence that God loves you which gets us back to where we started this entire passage the love of god now we in 21st century america use the word love in a million ways i love god i love casey i love larkin i love canon i love scripture i love theology i love parkway but i also love tacos and coffee and texas a and m and karaoke and sushi and queso i could just go on and on i love dogs i hate cats Right? We could go on and on with the different ways that we use this. The problem with such a promiscuous use of the word love is that it loses its luster if we kind of conflate all of these different meanings and apply the various nuances of our love for things to God's love for us. As if God's love for us is similar to my love for Tex-Mex or a college football team called the Aggies that inevitably disappoints me to the point that I just stopped watching halfway through the season. Is that God's love for us? Is it like my love for the Aggies? Is he a fair-weather fan of Jeff Ashley? Does he just eventually get bored? He adores me for a few years, but eventually he turns a blind eye and a deaf ear because he's just too disappointed. He's too angry. He's too frustrated. He's too bored by me. We started this morning by talking about this phrase, "See what kind Of love the Father has given to us. And mentioned that the phrase, what kind, means something like how great or how massive or how marvelous is the love of God toward us. And we said that we can see that in its effects, in what it accomplishes. What does it accomplish? It makes us sons. Though we are sinners, though we are depraved, it makes us Sons or daughters, it takes these depraved, wicked, vile, self-centered idolaters and makes us beloved heirs. That's one way to measure the greatness of the love of God toward us by considering the effect of that love. But there's also another way. In addition to looking at the effects of God's love, we could also look at the means or the cost of God's love. If you want to know how much you love something, just consider what would you give to have it? What would you give up? What would you sacrifice to have it or to save it? If you really want to know how much I love Casey and Larkin and Cannon, then just look at what I would give to protect them, to save them, to help them. What links would I go to in order to keep them from harm? Likewise, if you want to know what kind of love the Father has given to us, has lavished upon us, yes, we look at the effects. He makes us his sons and daughters, but we also consider the cost. What links did he go to in order to demonstrate his love? Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's it. Humanity is separated by this infinite chasm caused by sin. And the Father looks down on the mass of humanity and he chooses to make some his children, to redeem them, to forgive them. But in order to do so, there must be sacrifice to atone for that sin, so God gives his son. What kind of love does the Father have for you? That he would give his son to make you sons and daughters. The son of God by nature becomes man so that men might become the sons of God by grace and adoption. He dies that we might live. He's forsaken that we might be forgiven he's cursed that we might be children so would you this morning would you see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of god and so we are let's pray father i thank you for your word this morning and i pray that you would help us i just confess we can't see these things We can't appreciate how good this actually is, how important this actually is, how true this actually is, without your Spirit's work in our hearts, giving us spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. And so I pray that you would help us this morning, Lord. Whether we already know you, but we know you as this distant being, or whether we don't know you, that we came in here as sons of Satan and you're working on our hearts right now to call us to faith in Christ. So I pray that you would help us, Lord, because you're good and you do good and you love us. And so we pray in Christ's name, amen.